Well, good morning, fellowship. Good to be with you this morning. Hey, um, today we get to wrap up the book of Daniel, and uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we're going we're gonna to hop right into it. You know, as we get started this morning, you know, the kids have been on spring break this week, and somehow with having the kids home, I went back to my childhood, and one traumatic memory emerged among all others. I don't know if you guys remember this thing, but this thing is the stuff of nightmares. It is the playground equipment that scares me even to this day. I don't even know what you call this thing, okay? Uh, I don't know if this is monkey bars. I prefer to call it death dome. Because uh, basically what would happen is uh, this thing was like the childhood equivalent of an MMA cage fight. And it, it, it was some marriage of some dystopian, you know, Mad Max and the Lord of the Flies as we would play this game that we used to call called King of the Mountain. And basically what would happen in King of the Mountain is you would, you would fight to make your way to the top. And if you were lucky enough to get to the top, well, you better be careful because that's when the fight just started. And one by one, all the other kids would scurry their way up, pull you down. And in this brutal elementary school bloodbath, you would fight to simply be the person who at the end of the day was the king of the mountain. And you know, the reality is every time I think about this thing and I turn on the evening news, I'm reminded that our world really isn't all that different, is it? I mean, every day we turn on the news and we hear the stories of, of people who are um, on a quest to rule it all, to be the king in the mountain. In our doggy dog world, people who climb their way to the top only to discover that it's there, that the real battle begins and discover that the, the quest to be king of the mountain often ends in failure, difficulty, and pain. And it's why I think again and again, as we have made our way through the book of Daniel, we are reminded that there is only one who is king of the mountain. And newsflash, none of us in this room are him or her. The one who is king of the mountain is God and God alone. And we are invited throughout the book of Daniel to orient our life around this beautiful mystery that in all, God is above all. Perhaps there's no better place to look at that reality in the book of Daniel than in its closing words. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open up with me to Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. We'll read uh, verses 9 and 10 in verse 13 together. And there we're told. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. But the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And then skipping down to verse 13, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Let's pray. Jesus, as we come before your word, we are reminded again as we've sung, you alone are worthy. You alone are worthy to open the scroll. You alone are worthy as the king of the mountain. And oh God, how our flesh, how our world around us tries to tell us otherwise. God, my prayer this week and my prayer this morning is that you would draw our hearts to an even greater picture of who you are. That in your sovereignty and power, you would remind us of your great grace and love. And so Lord, fill us, guide us, lead us today as we make our way through your word, in your name. Amen? Amen. 
Well, friends, today we come to the conclusion of our study in the book of Daniel. And I don't know about you, this has been such an encouraging and yet challenging book to work through. There's been so much great material as, as we've been challenged uh, to look at the God who stands above it all. You might recall all the way back in Daniel chapter 1, we suggested to you kind of a key idea, a key nugget of this message. That in all, God is above all. Uh, this reality that though circumstances and challenges of life don't go according to plan, though the world as we know it seems to be turned upside down, we have this certain hope that God is the one who stands above it all. And it invites us, even in the darkest moments of human existence, to recognize that there is a greater reality, a greater principle, a greater truth that is guiding us, even in life's most difficult times. And friends, how much more so that is true as we look at the chapters that we're going to be looking at today. Because here we're going to see that God, with incredible precision, will describe out the next 600 years of the ancient worlds that surrounded the nation of Israel, even with a look to the future, and will invite us to see that he's in charge of it all. In fact, what I want to suggest to you is our take-home truth, kind of the core nugget of our message today is simply this, that God is the one who is above all. And because God is above all, we're invited to follow him in obedience and expectantly trusting in his power and love. You might ask, well, what does that look like? And it's here then that we dive in to chapter 11 and this incredibly detailed historical picture of what the next, hundred, the next 600 years will look like in ancient history. Now, before we do that, I think it's important to look at these words in, in the context of the rest of the book of Daniel. Uh, here is actually a, an image that I found this week that I thought was so powerful in showing us the flow and the repetition that's been going on throughout the book of Daniel. For example, in chapter 2, we have the picture of the different empires that would rise under Nebuchadnezzar's reign. In chapter 7, we have the images of the four beasts that are represented by each of these empires. That continues on with the two beasts in chapter 8. But as we come to chapter 11, we're going to zero in on one of those empires in particular, the empire of Greece. And uh, with such precision, God is going to give us a picture of what those times will look like, as well as giving us a glimpse into that which is to come. If you have your Bible, uh, look with me in verse 2. And I, I believe what God is going to show us in this section is to recognize the futility and the failure of human kings. He says, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and a fourth will be far richer than all of them. Scholars recognize that these are references to Symbiases, to Synertus, to Darius the Great, and to Xerxes, four Persian kings that would arise following uh, the rule of Darius the Mede. But then we notice a shift that begins to happen because we begin to talk about at the end of verse 2, the kingdom of Greece, that a great king shall arise and rule with great dominion and do as he wills. You might remember from a couple weeks ago, this is a reference to Alexander the Great, the great horn of chapter 8, who ruled with such dominion and power that the expanse of his empire had gone unrivaled up to that point in human history. But then in verse 4, we're told, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven. 
As you might recall, uh, Alexander the Great, at the peak of his reign, contracts malaria and dies a premature death, and his kingdom is divided among four of his generals that will lead throughout the ancient world. And what it begins to set up is a description here between two kings, the king of the south and the king of the north. Now, I want to share with you this timeline of Alexander's divided kingdom. I wish I had the time today to get into all of the historical references that are going on here. I just want to touch on a few because they are so incredibly precise that it says something about God's sovereignty and power over the nations. So first, uh, in verse 6, we're told that the king of the south, though strong, They'll make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. Uh, this is a reference to Bernice, the Seleucid daughter, who marries uh, King Ptolemy. And as a result of that alliance, uh, this is the ancient world. And I'll tell you, some of these stories that we see throughout history rival anything that we'll ever see on Jerry Springer. Because what happens is that Bernice is married to Ptolemy, and yet uh, she's murdered along with her firstborn son. But then we're told in verse 7 that a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. It's a reference here to her brother, Eugurides, who rises up and out of anger retaliates against the king of the south. And it begins this back and forth that literally will go on for 600 years. Uh, if you skip down to verse 17, we're told that, uh, that this king will set his face to come with the strength of the whole kingdom, and he'll bring to terms an agreement and perform them. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Uh, the reference here is actually uh, the giving of Cleopatra to Antiochus. Uh, this reference that uh, as this marriage, as this union takes place, the belief was that this was going to create a stronger kingdom. But here's the thing. Cleopatra actually has a strong regard for the young, uh, the young king that she marries. And rather than using the political power to the advantage of her kingdom, she actually defends her newly found husband. And then in verse 18 afterwards, he shall come to turn his face to the coastlands and will capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon them. You see, as the Seleucids began to make their campaign towards the West, all of a sudden a new empire emerges in the West. Anyone know what empire that might be? The Roman Empire. And as Rome begins its conquest towards the East, literally everything that Antiochus had fought for falls flat. Now you might say, well, Ryan, this is great. Why this level of historical detail? Why would God take so much time and energy to describe the rise and the fall of the ancient kingdoms that come in this time of the world? Again, I think it comes back to where we start in the book of Daniel to show us that in all, God's above all. I mean, think about where the nation of Israel is. Think about where Daniel is at the moment these prophecies are being given. Here is Daniel carried off into captivity, one who had been ripped from his homeland, human trafficked, a victim of sexual exploitation. Again, so many things in this moment seem to be stacked against the nation of Israel. 
But God is sending the message to the ancient world. Make no mistake. I'm the one calling the shots. I know how history is going to unfold. And in my sovereignty and in my power, I will bring it to pass. You know, this week, as I sat in those words, in these realities, as I looked at this detailed description of history, really, I understood why many will argue, well, Daniel, there's no way Daniel could have seen this stuff in advance. I mean, this had to be written after. It is so precise. If you believe that God wasn't in the equation. But friends, if God is the one who is saying this, to ancient Israel, if God is making his declaration as the king who is above all over the ancient world, how much more is God the God who sets the course of our path today? Have you ever been there? Some circumstance, some difficulty seems to come your way and life seems to go off track. Maybe things come to a point where it's like, God, how could you possibly Allow this in my life. And yet the reality is what we see in these verses is that God is sovereignly demonstrating his power to use any circumstance, any ruler, though he thinks he's king of the mountain, to manifest and to demonstrate his sovereignty and power over the world. Friends, how much more in the stuff that you and I walk through. Now it's with that view that Daniel not only looks to the, to the recent kings that would come following his time, but he also looks to a particular king, to a diabolical king that will come. You know, throughout our studies of the book of Daniel, we've looked at one of these kings in particular. We find a description of him in verse 20. Then there shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of kingdom. But within a few days, uh, he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. This is a description of a king we've looked at at several points throughout the book of Daniel. King Antiochus Epiphanes IV. This is the same king who laid siege to the nation of Israel and more particularly the city of Jerusalem. In fact, I have a painting that, dis that depicts uh, this treacherous moment in human history where Antiochus IV, in order to demonstrate the superiority of, of the Seleucid Empire over Israel, begins to build altars to Zeus around the city of Jerusalem. And this reaches a fervish peak when on December 16th, he takes a pig into the most holy place of the temple and slaughters it. The most unclean animal in the most holy place and desecrates the temple until many years later, that temple would be redeemed and renewed by a Jewish royal family known as the Maccabees. By the way, as you might recall, what is that celebration known as, that restoration of the temple? It's Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And as we see the legacy 
King Antiochus IV, many recognize that he is in view here. He is, on one hand, this great horn that we saw in Daniel chapter 8. And yet, we recognize that there is one to come that will, even in a more brutal and violent way, claim to be king of the mountain and come to a horrendous end. We find a description of this king in verse 36. That this king, this king who is to come, he will do as he wills. He will exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. He will speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is complete, for what is decreed shall be done. You know, there's a good deal of question in terms of what this king is like, but there's a couple things that we can say for sure. Number one, this is a king who will be marked by brazen arrogance. Uh, This king literally magnifies and exalts himself above every other god. Later, it will talk about in verse 36 that he will abandon uh, the gods of his fathers and he will follow other gods with gold and silver, precious stones and costly gifts. One of the questions that's raised here is, well, is this then referencing one who would arise from among the Jewish people? I don't think so. Because there's a shift that's taken place up to this point in the letter where we're looking at the Gentile kings of Greece and Rome. Rather, it, it, it portrays the image of one who would arise, who we're told is so ruthlessly determined and empowered with his own sense of self that he believes that is the ultimate king over it all. He is the one who calls the shots. In fact, one of the interesting terms that we find to describe his reign there in verse 36 is this description that he will honor the God of fortresses. The Hebrew scholar Kiel gives us this description of this God of fortresses. He says that the God of fortresses is the personification of war. And the thought is this, he will regard no other God but only war. The taking of fortresses he will make his God, and he will worship this God as the means of gaining world power. Of this God, war as the object of deification. It might be said that his fathers knew nothing because no other king had made war. His religion, his God, to whom he offered up all sacrifices, all gold, all silver, all precious silvers, or precious stones and jewels. Part of what marks this king to come is that he will be a warmonger who will literally lead the world in a great battle that will decisively meet in the land of Israel. That's the second thing I think we can say about this ruler who is to come. He's a king whose reign will be marked by war. If you have your Bible, look with me in verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack the king of the north, uh, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He will come into the glorious land, a reference to the land of Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and part of the Ammonites. And he shall stretch out his hands against the country, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become the ruler of treasures of gold and silver, 
and all the things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. Scholars recognize that the reference here is, describes a battle that has yet to come to pass. And many have looked at this passage and see in this a reference uh, to the battle that is described in the book of Revelation known as the Battle of Armageddon. When the forces of the world gather in a great plain in the land of Israel. If you've ever seen, uh, if you've ever been to Israel or you've seen this valley, it is a valley that is very wide, very expansive. And literally what begins to happen is the battles from the north and the battles of the south come to war against each other and meet in this decisive moment. And this great battle rages. In fact, we're told in verse 45 that this great king, this king who is so full of himself, shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, a reference to the temple mount. Yet he shall come to an end with none to help him. No matter how gruesome, no matter how great this king may seem, the promise in the book of Daniel is there is coming a time when this king's reign will be put to an end. You know, as you skip forward into chapter 12, we get this beautiful picture of, of uh, what God is doing in this moment. Because we're told in verse 1, at that time shall arise Michal or Michael. Uh, this is a reference to one of the great warrior angels. In fact, the word Mike, the name Michael in Hebrew means who is like God. Think about that. Even at this moment when humanity seems to be at the lowest, literally at this moment when the world as we know it seems to be turned upside down, the promise that we're given is this simple reality. Who is like our God. Then it goes on to say, and there will be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people will be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Scholars look at this passage and they believe that this is a reference to the final moments of the end. The, the moments of the last judgment where uh, all of humanity is judged at the return of Christ. And then I love this description. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. And then this curious comment to the book of Daniel. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. He's, I mean, what, what an honest assessment of human history. That there is coming a time when many are going to uh, rise and fall. Though the kingdoms of this world rage and totter. As we're told in Psalm 46, verse 1, that he utters his voice. And the earth melts. And in the crazy cries of this world that call us to look at yet another political regime, 
we are called to recognize that the God who stands above it all is not a politician. He's not a monarch. He is none other than the one true king who set this world into existence. And he is calling the shots. Even when life doesn't make sense. Again, I look at these, I look at these realities and I wonder, God, why? Why would you give us such a detailed description of this kind of king? God, why would you give us a picture of, of, of what this guy looks like? Honestly, many of these stories are so terrifying. And I think the answer is, is I wrestled with that question this week. It is so when that king comes on the scene, we can live in the certain hope that his days are numbered and he will not have the last word. And though the nations of this earth come and go, that we are called to listen to the evening news and the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms, our hope is this, the one true king who stands above it all is the king who started it all. And he alone is worthy of it all. Again, it's this simple reality that in all, God is above all. So what do we do with that? And it's here that I want to look at the closing words of verses 9 to 13. Before we do that, though, I want to address quickly these questions of dates that we find in verses 11 to 12. You'll notice that three different times are listed. In Revelation chapter 11, we're given one number that is a reference to 1260 days. Here in verse 11, we have a reference to 1,290 days, and then uh, we're told later in the verse, blessed are those uh, who endure 1,335 days. Okay, what's up with all these days? What is this calendar that God is setting in motion? Can I tell you, I wanted a whole sermon just to explore these three dates. So um, let me do this. Let me give a brief, very surfacey, and certainly not doing it justice overview to what I believe is behind each of those numbers. Number one, in Revelation chapter 11, at the, at, the, um, at the ministry of the two witnesses that we see at the end of days, we find a reference to 1,260 days. Remember that we've been looking at these 70 weeks throughout the book of Daniel. Uh, this likely is a reference to the completion of this time of, of desecration that we're seeing, that this time when God is going to come and restore his temple. But then we see an addition of 30 days in the 1,290 days. One of the, and um, man, there are so many different theories over what's behind those 30 days. The best that I can tell you, probably the most appealing of the different options I've seen, is this view that it is some kind of administrative period where God is literally setting the world back right the way that he had it. As he's judging the nations and the effects and the impacts of ending the, the kingdom of, of the evil one finally comes to an end. And then what's up with this 1335 day? Again, that's another 45 days. And again, some have suggested perhaps that is a prolonged judgment of the nations. The short answer, though, is I would not die on a hill on what any of these numbers mean. 
I, I think the point here is not so much to give us some calculator formula that we can use to calculate the dates and the timings of the end. But rather, it is an invitation for us to see that whatever the circumstance, whatever the difficulty, God is still the one who stands above it all. So with that, what do we do with that? Number one, I think it becomes an invitation to recognize, don't be surprised when the world falls apart at the seams. I think sometimes one of the things that we can do is we can watch the evening news and wonder, man, is the world going to hell in a handbasket? Well, no, and it's experiencing deep and profound brokenness. Our response of follower, as followers of Jesus is not to be surprised, but rather to recognize this is merely the unfolding of the effect of human sin and brokenness in the world. And rather, it becomes an invitation for us to step into that brokenness, to be as a people called by Christ, a people who step into the darkest corners of human history and bear witness to this beautiful mystery that Christ is risen and his kingdom is at hand. In fact, uh, here in a few weeks, we're going to be launching into a new sermon series of what that picture looks like in the Sermon on the Mount. And throughout this series, Jesus paints for us a beautiful picture of how we as the people of God are invited to live in a radically different way because everything we know about how the world works has radically changed because Christ has come. With that, if you look in verse 10, we're told that many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. The image that we're given here is a call to sovereignly, or in light of God's sovereignty, to live our lives with purpose and intention, to know God, to invest our lives in the pursuit of understanding who he is, and to reflect that love and that wisdom to the world around us. But in verse 13, the third call, but go your way until the end. Daniel, and you shall rest and stand in your applauded, allotted place at the end of days. You see, we can get so caught up in these images of the end that we start to build bunkers under our houses. You know, we, we, we begin to check calendars and clocks and do crazy multiplication in order to figure out how we can stay in control and figure out what the future looks like. But the call that God is giving to the prophet, and I believe the call by extension that God gives to us, is the call to stay the course. A call to be faithful and to trust that no matter how dark, no matter how broken this world seems to be, God is faithful. And in his way and in his time, he is going to set all things right. Friends, I believe, even for us today, we, we know that here. But you've likely heard this before, that oftentimes 18 inches is the longest distance. What would it begin to look like if instead of being obsessed with timelines and uh, what, the, what the future might look like, we recognize that the kingdom of God is present among his people today? And he is calling us to bear witness and grace to those in the world.
It is a sovereign call to the mission of following Jesus, to not get so caught up in the death match of being king of the mountain, but in radically reorienting our lives around the one who is. And so the question that I, I want to leave us with as we look here at the book of Daniel, is simply to marvel again at this mystery. If God is the God who stands above it all, where do I need to trust that he's got it? Let me ask an honest question. Would any of you like me say, you know, I like to be in control. I like to know how it all works out. I like to know and to, and, and to um, figure out the deepest details of what my life is going to look like. Friends, the mystery of the book of Daniel is not the invitation to unravel all the mysteries of the universe, but rather it is an invitation to fall on our knees before the God who really is above it all. And perhaps entering into the mystery of the book of Daniel begins in a simple surrender of saying, God, you know what you're doing. You know what you're doing, even if I don't. And in humble surrender, I choose to trust you. Friends, what would it look like if we stopped playing King of the Mountain? What would it look like if rather than living in this dog-eat-dog world, we were invited to live a radically different way in this beautiful mystery that the kingdom of God is at hand? And as we make our way over the next few months into the Sermon on the Mount, I believe God is going to paint such a beautiful picture of how the world as we know it has been radically upended. And we are invited to live in a radically different way. So friends, next week we are going to do something um, uh, rather exciting. We're going to be reviewing what we've learned in the book of Daniel. And so what I want to do is I actually want to invite you uh, to consider a couple questions this week. We're going to have a time of congregational sharing next week. And, and the question is simply this. Where has the book of Daniel challenged you or encouraged you? You know, if God is the God who is above all, what does that look like in your journey? If God is the God who is above all, how does that change the way uh, you live life on a day-to-day -day basis? And that's where we're going next week. We'll have some time to share and even to respond to that beautiful truth. But friends, as we come to the close of the book of Daniel, my greatest prayer this week is that you would come out of this book with a bigger picture of who God is. That as we have traced the rise and the fall of human kingdoms, you would see the power of a God whose kingdom will know no end. A king who stands above it all. A king who is calling the shots even against the darkest moments of history. That your hearts would be anchored in this truth. In it all. No matter the circumstance, God still stands above it all in that hope. We pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as we do. Sovereign King over history. God, I just, I, I feel led to confess that so often 
my doubting heart asks the question, do you really know what you're doing? Really? In my own pride, I say to you, God, I, but I could do it better. I know better. I, there's got to be a different way. But Jesus, we come before you in this hope of two realities, that you are good and you know exactly what you're doing. And God, far more than the ups and the downs of, of the worlds and the nations, Lord, we know that there are places in our heart where we wrestle with that same truth. Jesus, how we pray that you would give us a bigger picture of yourself. That a vision of your sovereignty and your power would fill every dimension of our lives. And God, where we need to trust, you got it, you know what you're doing. Would you give us faith? Would you give us grace? Would you anchor our lives in you? Jesus, we love you so much. Father, we thank you for your unfailing love. Spirit, we pray, come, move in our hearts that we might be transformed by your great love. We love you. We trust you. And we surrender to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.